This podcast is brought to you by the Health Sciences Doctoral Training Centre at King's College London. Hi, you're listening to Postdocalypse, a podcast by postgrad students about all things postgrad. We're a team of PhD students at King's College London, trying to navigate this crazy world, and we'll be sharing the highs and lows of postgraduate study. My name is Elisa Brown, and I'm a PhD student at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience. Today I'm joined by Alexandra Lotorescu, who's doing her PhD on depression in pregnancy and its effects on neurodevelopment. We're going to be talking about her research, as well as talking more generally about the topic of stress when doing a PhD. Also joining us on our panel this time are Katie Begg, who is a second-year PhD student in cancer research, and Emily Pripper, who is a second-year PhD student in nutrition. So we have Ale here, and uh, you are a first-year PhD student, yes? Yeah. Uh, and you're based over at St. Thomas's, right? Um, and her research is part of a super big project called the Developing Human Connectome Project. So anyway, maybe let's just start with the big picture. Why are you doing this research? So my fascination with neurodevelopment actually started a couple of years ago. Um, I worked at a summer camp in the States with some absolutely amazing uh, children and adults with developmental disabilities. So that really, really sparked my interest in the brain and neurodevelopment in general and how the brain works and what happens when things go wrong. Uh, so as part of my PhD, I have the opportunity to um, look at the brain in the earliest stages of development, so newborn babies and fetuses, um, to look at the effect that maternal depression might have on their brain development. And so is that something that is known to have an impact? So depressed mothers, does that have an impact on the development of the child in the womb? So there's, um, there's quite a bit of evidence that it has impact on like obstetric outcomes. So basically, um, they get born prematurely, they mm. get born with like a lower birth weight, but also some evidence suggesting that later on in life, they might have emotional problems, ADHD, um, lower IQ mm. or anything along those lines. The main problem is that people don't really know, researchers don't really know at the moment what's worse for the baby in terms of outcomes. Is it if the mother has untreated depression or is it if the mother has depression and takes antidepressants? Of course. So that must be a really difficult one, especially mothers who have quite severe depression. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you monitor that versus, you know, monitoring the fetus if mm. the mother's receiving antidepressants? That must be a really difficult choice. Do you know what the current kind of uh, climate is? You know, what do most depressed mothers have to do? Um, from what I know, it's about, I think it's about one in 10 um, pregnant women are experiencing quite severe depression mm. during their pregnancy. And I think it's like, less than half of those take antidepressants. But because there's so much talk and so much evidence around antidepressants being bad for the baby, yeah. a lot of them stop taking it, um, st stop taking the medication, and then don't really continue even after the baby's born, because obviously they're worried about it being transferred through breast milk mm. and other stuff like that. True. So all of these really, really depressed women kind of lose contact with health professionals for their mental health, which Gosh, is obviously yeah. a huge issue. Because not only their depression may affect the baby while it's still in the womb, it may also affect the baby through parenting and through other things that happen after the baby is born. Mm, so which, um, so you are doing neuroimaging. Mm -hmm. And so what factors are you also looking at? Are you looking at, are you following up these children after they've been born? And are you looking at like 
other things like how they are brought up by their mom or mm-hmm. in diet and things like that? <laughs> so so basically this this project, the Developing Human Connection Project, is this really, really large project going on at uh, St. Thomas Hospital in collaboration with other universities. And they have so far scanned about 600 newborn babies. Gosh, that's and a lot of, a lot a, of babies. It's yeah. a lot of babies. And they have this uh, special scanner exactly for yeah. the baby. It's less noisy. It's less oh, scary. Wow. They should actually, make those for adults as well. That would <laughs> they be, should. It's actually really cool. Yeah. Um, but basically, yeah, they scan, they're scanning newborn babies. And they also started, I think, last week to scan fetuses. Mm. So that means that the mom <clears throat> goes into the scanner and gets, gets a scan. And then you can look at the baby's brain in the womb. So the, so the mother goes into the scanner. Mm-hmm. And then you can scan the baby inside the mother's yeah. womb yeah. inside the scanner. Yeah. Right. Okay. So <laughs> that's probably... Uh, so, that's Fun that's experience. what they're doing. And how does the mum fit in the scanner? It just it's just kind of like quite small. <laughs> it's just kind of like a regular MRI, but rather yeah. than having the coil, is what it's called mm-hmm. around your head. You just have it around the belly. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, so they've been doing this for quite a while now, and now I came in with my PhD, and I'm looking at the um, depression scores that they mm. they complete a questionnaire during pregnancy. So I'm looking at to correlate the depression scores with the actual images of the baby. Okay. And then after the baby's born, they get followed up um, around like 18 months. And we do mm. a developmental assessment to see how the baby's actually doing. Mm. So the big question is, if we do see any changes in the baby's brain, does this actually reflect in their behavior in so any sort of way? If I can ask, uh, what kind of changes are you expecting to see? Like, for instance, is it to do with... Uh, neurogenesis or mm-hmm. is there shrinkage in the brain that sort of thing or yes. what would you expect that's to a good see? question uh, you don't know maybe that's your phd <laughs> right there yeah. so there there has been some research done in this but the the quality of the images is usually quite bad i can imagine yeah if you've ever had an mri scan <laughs> you have to be super still yeah, uh, for the image to come right and not, you can't really not a good time to be swimming in a swimming pool exactly yeah. or in someone's womb exactly yep. <laughs> so you can't really yep. tell fetus to be still no uh, so the can't. images are not great quality um, so now the Developing Human Connection Project has basically improved scanning uh, quality. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot better quality images. So you can look at stuff like uh, cortical thickness. So that's wow. basically just structural changes in the brain. You can look at like gray matter volume. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can also look at functional changes. So brains, My goodness. areas that activate yeah. differently if the baby is born to a depressed mother. That's very interesting. And are there any particular areas that are known to be different in these sorts of um, fetuses or children? Yeah, so um, there's been quite a bit of evidence suggesting um, like an overall increase, decrease in grey matter volume, um, changes in connectivity between the amygdala and other subcortical regions, and widespread changes in microstructure. Um, But a lot of this research has been done on young children or adolescents, So the advantage of scanning babies is that you basically eliminate all of these other confounding variables. So it it makes the whole picture of nature versus nurture a bit clearer. So thanks, Ale, for that overview. I mean, it seems really fascinating to see how before birth we are already being impacted by what's happening around us. I mean, I gather a big part of your project is about giving the best outcome to both mother and child. And on that note, I want to try and involve our panel in the discussion. So perhaps I can start by asking Emily, what do you make of, of this sort of thing in nutrition? 
Yeah, actually, this is a really hot topic within nutrition at the moment, um, because obviously we're aware that obesity is a huge problem in today's society. So with that hand in hand, there are more pregnant women who at the beginning of their pregnancy are overweight. And what the data shows really is that heavier pregnant women are at risk of developing um, complications within their pregnancy, such as diabetes, and also that this may actually have an impact on not only the child's birth weight, but their health later on in life. Oh, so that's really interesting because I know from a mental health perspective, uh, women, pregnant women that are also obese often experience mental health difficulties as well, like depression and anxiety. And I can imagine that depression on top of um, obesity and actual physical complications is then only going to exacerbate exactly. that. Exactly. Mentally and physically. I think it's that idea that just having a well-rounded mental and physical well-being is the best kind of pregnancy you can have. And if they've got the two together, it's only going to be a detrimental effect, really. I think I was thinking, so I used to do this. I used to look at epigenetics. There's this really interesting thing I remember learning about called the Dutch hunger winter. Okay, no. Right, so this was um, a period of time, I think, during um, World War II. So, yeah, in the winter and the spring of 1944, um, when... Amsterdam and other cities in the Netherlands were um, kind of rationing and there were a lot of women who were pregnant at that time and they were not having um, normal diets. They were essentially starved. Um, But really interestingly, um, there was a lot of data collected at this time. So I think during the 1980s, um, a few people looked back on on the data of those women who were pregnant and their offspring. And what they found was that um, a lot of the children that were born uh, from these malnutrition nutritioned women malnourished yeah (laughs) malnourished you know what I mean um had kind of higher rates of cardiovascular disease and also diabetes as well so yeah it was the first time that there was a really solid link between um what goes on when you're pregnant and uh, your child's health ultimately it seems crazy that we're only really just jumping on the bandwagon with it yeah I mean it makes so much sense but it's really interesting as well thinking about the exact stage of pregnancy so actually that was going to be my question to you yeah so I was just wondering if there was um if these uh if the mothers have experienced depression all the way through their pregnancy or if there's one particular point in pregnancy which shows kind of different effects in the fetus yes that's that's a really good question um again i'm only just starting my research so i don't really have an answer for that yet Uh, but there is some research saying that um the severity of the symptoms in the offspring are related to the trimester of pregnancy. So there is some evidence suggesting that um, depression in the third trimester has worse outcomes for the baby, some evidence saying in the first trimester. And then again, there's the evidence talking about antidepressants and then that just complicates things. So people don't really know. That's that's the only answer I have. And how do they manage to figure out whether postnatal depression is coming stemming from the pregnancy or other stimulus mm. from then having the child after yes. having the child. So that's that's really good. So so far, um that's that's where my research is new. Because so far what they've done is that they've looked at baby brains when they're about two years old and when they're about six years old. And obviously a lot of other factors can come in. It could be, you know, parenting, it could be socioeconomic status, it could be early life experiences that the child has had, basically anything. Um, so that's why I'm basically imaging the brain, brain of the baby 
a couple of days after birth. So just to make sure there's no other influences so that the fact that the mother is depressed postnatally is not going to influence that. This is really interesting, actually, because it brings up the the concept because, you know, previously everyone just thought that your genetics determined how you were going to be in life. Absolutely. Your genes were unchanged all the way through your lives. So if you were, you know, going to develop um, a mental health disorder, for example, type diabetes, that could be programmed in your genetics. But one thing studies like this are showing is that actually things can change even, you know, at the beginning of pregnancy or early, early childhood, for example. Um, so that kind of brings into the conversation that the idea of epigenetics, right? So for people who don't know about epigenetics, it's the additional marks on DNA that can change the way that um, our genes function. So DNA methylation or chromatin um, modifications. So, yeah. I think epigenetics is a really interesting topic. And mm. although we can kind of then say that the mother is then other passing on other conditions, that also opens up so much in research there for the dreaded word of intervention. But we could then start to have an impact or, for example, giving mental health therapy alongside nutrition. Does that then change the outcome of the baby, mm. not only the baby, but also the mother? I think it's really interesting. Mm. Definitely. So there's um, there's some evidence. They've done some interventions where they um, actually taught parenting skills to depressed mothers. And there's some evidence to suggest that that improves outcomes for the baby. So definitely early Outcomes being what? Uh, it varies. It's anything from cognitive outcomes. So, you know, IQ, anything like that, emotional outcomes. So, you know, depression, anxiety in the child later on, um, or even stuff like aggression really early on. And that's very interesting along those lines. Yeah. Katie, Ali, I don't know about you, but I feel like we could talk about this for hours. But one thing that is kind of highlighting is that we all know that there's great research going on within our areas. Mm. But one thing's for sure is that they all seem quite disconnected from each other. And actually, if we step back and there needs to be a study that's incorporating a holistic approach mm. to the to helping these um, pregnant women. Def- definitely. So one of the one of the cool things about my project uh, is that all of the data that we're actually collecting as part of the Developing Human Connection project is available online for obviously you know, anonymized uh, for scientists all over the world to download it and do their own research using it. So people like geneticists. Exactly. And nutritionists. Nutritionists. (laughs) Exactly. So what I'm doing is only a small slice of it. Mm. There's also saliva samples collected. There's also a lot of other information, eye tracking. So other scientists can come to it from a different angle. Amazing. I want to get involved. Yeah, me too. And on that note, I want to thank Alexandra and the panel for that discussion. Remember, if you have any thoughts about what we've talked about, you can tweet us on at postdocalypse18. Next up, we'll be talking about mental mental welfare during your PhD and how to cope with stress. But first... Hi, I'm Mike, and today we're going to embrace our inner nerd and the nerdy things we do during our PhD. Hi, everyone. So I'm Geoffrey. And every day when I'm coming to the office, I have a really nice song in the head. And when I'm counting the cells, then I'm I'm using this song to tap and count the cells. So ta 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 ta. Hi, I'm Carlos, and when I start an experiment, I always have to order all things by size. But when I finish my experiment, it doesn't matter. <laughs> 
<laughs> Thanks, Carlos. That was really interesting. So last year, a study from Ghent University found that one in two, that's 50% of PhD students experience psychological distress. And one in three of those is at risk of a common psychiatric disorder. I mean, that's a shocking statistic. And the most common reported symptoms include things like feeling under con constant strain, being unhappy and depressed, losing sleep because of worry and not being able to overcome difficulties or even enjoy day-to-day -day activities. Ali, you and I, we started our PhD at the same time, about six months ago, right? And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm definitely already beginning to feel some kind of pressure and the, I think for me anyway the the pressure is coming from needing to make decisions which is a completely um, different level for me and mm. the pressure of having to make decisions definitely causes me to to really overthink a lot of the things that I am doing even if it's things that I really trust I know is a good decision mm. you know you always find yourself second guessing I don't know about you I mean, have you experienced any kind of stress so far? Or? Yeah, I mean, I mean, PhD is probably the first time for a lot of us that we have to make important decisions mm. and trust our own gut instinct on a lot of things. Because mm. I guess when you're an undergrad, everything's just kind of handed over to you in that you need to do this and then you need to do this, mm. whereas a PhD is a lot more independent. Yeah. Um, I've been lucky enough that my, my supervisors are extremely supportive and amazing mm. and yeah i've been i've been really lucky with that um but i would say what's what's stressful so far for me is a lot of things are out of your control absolutely I'm quite a, quite a control freak agree. i mean i think uh, we all are if we're doing a phd aren't we so like ethics like everyone yeah. knows how stressful that can be mm. and absolutely and i think um i don't know about you but i definitely find myself taking my work home with me like i'm the sort of person who you know, I will work from home some days, but then it means that I don't switch off at five o'clock. You know, mm. I'm thinking about it all evening. And, you know, I don't think I'm quite at the stage yet that I'm, you know, not able to sleep. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure I will get there at some point. Mm. So I, I worked during my master's with a PhD student who basically, she, she was on track for finishing early. She was an amazing PhD student. But she basically said that her rule is to never work more than nine to five like more than you know 40 hours a week never work on weekends and the fact that she still managed to do that without actually you know as you're saying bringing her work home was really mm. inspiring to me so I'm kind of trying to do the same thing and trying not to think about work outside of work had different undergraduate or master's experiences mm. like I mean I was saying to someone earlier that you know for me my master's was a, a steep learning curve mm. like a really steep learning curve in terms of maybe figuring out the practicals like think, figuring out how to use MATLAB how to do mm. EG how to do mm. all these different techniques you know it was it took me a long time to learn things mm -hmm. and that was what mm -hmm. was stressful but now for me definitely the stress is is different but it, I still feel it yeah, definitely. Like, I, I think I was lucky enough that my my uh, master's degree was an MPhil. Mm -hmm. So it's basically mirroring a mini PhD. A mini PhD. So I kind of know everything that I'm supposed to expect mm. in a PhD. And I think also compared to, you know, how we used to be as undergrads or even before that, I feel like when you're at this level, you're more likely to ask for help if mm. you do experience stress. So do you feel like that's something you can do easily? Uh well, maybe. <laughs> uh, so 
um, King's actually has a brilliant counseling service uh, for yeah. undergrads and PhD students alike. And I've actually accessed that myself recently. And they've been absolutely amazing and supportive and it's something I'd recommend anyone to do. Absolutely. And actually, on that point, I might just elaborate a bit more to talk about um, the counselling service that King's provides. It's part of the student services, and they offer information about self-help, one-to-one sessions with a counsellor, as well as group workshops to try and help t- tackle issues related to stress or other kind of mental health conditions. So all of this can be found under the wellbeing um, page on the student services of KCL website. So if you are you know have any questions about that that's the best place to go thanks elisa that's actually really great to hear because i wasn't aware i wasn't aware that that was on offer at all at kings neither did i actually i'd never i've never heard of that service before i think as well particularly as phd students it can be such an isolating three four years because you know the idea is that a phd is so novel so you do feel like you're go- you're facing these problems and you feel really, really, really alone. There's no one that's yeah. kind of going through it with you. And I think that's what I hear most of all, like that, that word, just isolating, because people have never been in this situation before where it's completely all their own. Yeah. And they've got no one essentially to take them through it. I mean, your supervisor's there, but sometimes mm. your supervisor isn't so there. They're not someone you can cry on. (laughs) I think people get really different and varied experiences as well in a PhD. That's Um, very true. Yeah and some people have a really really tough time to be honest. I know I don't know whether we want to go down this road but speaking personally I think my PhD so far thankfully I feel like I'm managing it but it's a real conscious effort not to a let myself get too stressed and be be a little bit kinder and kind of be aware when my anxiety is hitting the roof. But that yeah. has come from years of kind of seeking help mm. and getting in those kind of, um, what are they called? Like um, kind of coping mechanisms. Coping mechanisms, yeah, that's right. what I'm looking for. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, the signs as to when things are getting a little bit too much. The mm. first thing for me is sleep goes. I don't know about really, you, but. Yeah. Well, I think, um, so me personally, I've, had to deal with depression for you know since I was really young like a child Gosh, but then <laughs> but it was never something I particularly acknowledged and then actually going into a PhD I had no concept that my mental health would suffer because I'd not really spoken to anyone who was doing a PhD I'd never really heard of anyone else's experiences so I just didn't deal with it wow. so I think it actually took me till halfway through my rotation year so when I was doing lots of different projects um and for my now boyfriend to take me by the shoulders and say, pull yourself together <laughs> yeah. and, you know, start dealing with this. So I think for me, it has been a real like steep learning curve, learning how to, as you say, find coping mechanisms yeah. and knowing when to stop and take a breather. And, you know, actually, as Ali was saying earlier about um, someone who she used to work with saying, I'm not going to work past five o'clock. Mm. And I think for me, not working on weekends was a massive step. Towards, I couldn't agree yeah. more. I don't know whether going from full-time education, mm. your master's and everything into a PhD is sometimes a very good thing because you haven't experienced what it is to have a job yeah, and a routine and take that into it. Yeah, Monday to and Friday. <laughs> to actually learn, oh, okay, so I don't need to work on the weekend yeah. and I can take this time. Mm. One of the hardest things to learn in your PhD is when to switch off because yeah. unfortunately 
as it is you and you alone, unless you're in a bigger research team, if you don't do it, no one will. Yeah. And it's only your your results and your thesis that yeah. suffers for it. Yeah, it's true. And I find that when I'm kind of, white, I don't know how to say this, but when I'm getting, uh, my anxiety is getting yeah. worse, for example, I just find myself so much less efficient. I just can't, Completely. I can't do the good work that I could usually be able to do. So can I ask if yeah. you had someone coming to you and saying they wanted to do a PhD mm. and they knew that they suffered from either general anxiety disorder or any other mental health problem, mm. would you advise them to do one? Because I think it's something that people are absolutely terrified yeah. of doing if they have some form of mental health problem. That is a really, really good question. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I would still say, if this is what you love, if you are passionate about this, like I feel I am about <laughs> my work, then you should not let anything stop you from doing what you love doing. I think that's a lovely thing to say. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. Uh, I hope that uh, reaches a couple of people out there. Yeah, hopefully. Um, but my question to you then, I don't know how this is turning into an interview, but I'm just really interested. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because this is something I really struggle with as well, mm. is that... When is it okay if we are struggling with, you know, a bit of anxiety and mm. my God, I I definitely do. When can we, if we were employed, you know, we would then be allowed to maybe have some time off. But true, for yeah. us, how do we give that to ourselves? Oh, yeah, I don't even know. I mean, actually, someone was saying earlier um, that PhD students are obliged to, to take holiday. I know, it's something it's, that's not discussed, is it? <laughs> God, I can't remember the last time I took a proper mm. holiday, but it is there for you to take. So yeah, it's I so true. We maybe need to get more aware of the fact that, although we are students, yeah. we are, this is work, this is our work life. And, you know, taking taking holiday is okay. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> you know, when you go and meet up with your friends and they're like, yeah, so oh, come on, you're a student, you can take time off whenever. And it's you're like, it's not the same. <laughs> Trust me, my yeah, student life is not what you had as undergrad. If only yeah. we could just paint that on a wall somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I wish we could wear a badge or something. <laughs> <laughs> not a real student, yeah. <laughs> but I still want the discount. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So after today's content, we wanted to leave you guys on a positive note and say that our very own Emily Pripper is running the London Marathon, her first ever one. Good luck. And on behalf of the mental health charity Mind. So if you want to support her on this worthy cause, you can find the links to her fundraising pages below. Best of luck, Emily. So that concludes our podcast today. Thank you for joining us. Special thanks to Alexandra for sharing about her research and to Katie and Emily as well. If you're struggling with the pressures that a PhD brings, remember you're really not alone and that there are resources available to help. In our upcoming podcasts, we want to talk about all things PhD. So if you would like us to focus on a particular topic or just want to get in contact, then please tweet us on at postdocalypse18. 